So as I explained that uh, we are having this call shine, and I want to start off today with a little story, a story that I believe many, if not most of you, should know this story. Uh, it's called what? Three little pigs. And now I need you to help me to tell this story. Okay, so there are three little pigs, right? And what did they try to do? They were trying to build a house, and then there are three little pigs, they're all brothers. The first pig built a house with? Straw. The second pig builds a house with? With what? Stick. The third pig builds a house with? Bricks, right? The first two pigs build their house really quickly, and they get to party. While the third pig took a really long time to build a house with? Brick. And then what happened? After they built a house. Then the wolf came, right? The wolf went to the first house, to the little pig. The pig got, got scared. The pig hid into his house, went in his house, hide there, hoping that the, the wolf won't come in. And the wolf huffed and puffed and blew the house because it was made out of straws. Then the, the first pig saw running to the second house, uh, to his brother's house, also made with sticks, right? And so the wolf chased them, and then the wolf huffed, puffed, and blew the house down, and then now there are two pigs, and what are they going to do? They are going to their third brother's house, which is made out of brick, and they ran to their house, and the wolf did what? Huff, puff, and blew the house, and the house, what happened? It stayed. Right? And then it, depending on your version of the story, their version, I, tell my, I, I talk to my kids about it, the, the wolf trying to climb down the chimney, and then they have a boil of water, they fell into the water, and the wolf is gone. Now, let me ask you this. What is the moral of that story? Patience is key. Hard work is key. The whole moral of the story, if you, if you have heard this from your parents, from your teacher, the moral of that story was to work hard. Don't go on the cheap. Don't go, don't go easy, but work hard because hard work pays off. You have a house of brick, right? So now I want to challenge this story today because the, while that is a moral of that story, maybe the intent purpose of the author, I want to challenge that pick a little bone with this story because we all know this story. The bone I want to pick with this story is this, is that many of us, whether because of this story or our belief about house, we somehow think that a house is a place where we get, we get protected. A home is where we hide from the danger from the world. That the house is somewhere that is safe, the house is somewhere that is comfortable, it is convenient, is where I can get stuff. And I call it the big three C's that many of us have about our home, about our house. It's comfort, it's convenience, it is where we consume things, eat things, take things. Isn't it true? There is a saying that says your, your home is where you let your hair down, right? That's where you're comfortable, like how many of you go home, you just, you go home from school, go home from work, just toss your stuff, I just want to lay out on the couch. Right? How many of us do that? How is this where it's convenient when you go home from college and you get, Mom, I have laundry. Guess what happens? Laundry gets done the next day, get folded, put it on your bed. That's where we get food. When you're hungry, it's like, just open the fridge, food just popped out. My kids every morning wake up knowing that breakfast will be on the table. How convenient is that? They never once ask, Dad, can I cook breakfast today? They never like, mm, can I just go do groceries so I can buy and cook food for you? See, many of us have this idea that our home, our house is for comfort, is for convenience. 
and it is for consuming. But what we will see today in this passage is the exact opposite of that. While your house and our house, we believe our home to be that way, the house of God, on the other hand, actually is exact opposite of that. In fact, I was, I was sharing this story, my point with, with someone, that, then the person asked me, so do you mean that the house of God is meant for us to be out with the wolves? And guess what? I think that's exactly what it means. That while the pigs hide in house for safety, the house of God, the spiritual house of God is meant to be out with the wolves, even to the point of being attacked by the wolves. That's pretty crazy, right? That's pretty upside down to what we believe about our home, what we believe about our house. No one built a house expecting to be attacked. We all have homes, apartments, whatever you live for safety. But yet, from the word of God today, what we will see is that this is exactly opposite of what God intended the house of God to be. So again, if you're a Bible, please turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 4 tells us from the very get-go this imagery of a house being built. Verse 4 is what it says. As you come to him, meaning the believers of Jesus Christ, the followers of Christ, as we come to Jesus, meaning as we come before him, as we surrender our lives to him, what happened? Here's the image of a house, a living stone rejected by men, and is, but inside of God chosen and precious. This is talking about Jesus. That there is a living stone, Jesus himself, being rejected by people, but is chosen precious to God. That living stone, when we come to Jesus, Jesus the living stone, what did he do? Verse 5, you yourselves like living stones. By the way, that's why we're called Christians, because we're like Christ. So Jesus is the living stone, and now when we come to him, when we become part of his people, verse 5 says, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house that we are being built up by jesus when you come to christ you become part of the spiritual house of god not the bricks not the walls not the things that we put out here the building but you as a believer as you come to him you are being built up like that living stone but here's the thing for many of us just like what i described earlier our house is a place of comfort a place of convenience, and a place of consumerism. But the house that God built is exact opposite of that. Why? Because Jesus' life was exact opposite of comfort, convenience, and consumerism. Because when you look at the passage, look at what it first started out saying. Verse 4, this living stone, this Jesus himself, was first rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen. He's precious and chosen, but yet the world rejected him. As we continue to read in verse 6, it tells us that this living stone have a specific name, a particular stone. It's called cornerstone. What we just said, cornerstone. Look at what it says in here in verse 6. Behold, I'm laying, this is a, by the way, this is a quotation from the Old Testament. And so the Peter, uh, Peter's audience would know exactly what he was referring to from the get-go. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone. Not any other stone, but a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. You know what a, a cornerstone is? Cornerstone is just not any other stone. Cornerstone, my kids said, corner, you know where cornerstone is? At the corner. I said, correct. Yes, cornerstone most, most of the time is at the corner because it sets the level, to set the line straight for the building. So if the cornerstone is off, the whole house, the whole building is off. 
The cornerstone not only set the line, but it also set the foundation. Sometimes the cornerstone is not in a corner in the middle of the building. It sets the foundation so that the house will not crumble. That's the cornerstone. But the cornerstone is not only so important, it also tells us this in verse 7, that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Again, the word rejected. Go back to the story, three little pigs. Go back to the point I said earlier. The house of God is not meant to be a house of comfort, convenience, and consumerism because the house that was built upon that rock was not about comfort, convenience, and, and uh, consumerism. Because the cornerstone, the very stone that built a house was rejected by people. The very cornerstone that brought, came into the world, Jesus Christ, was crucified by the world. The very cornerstone that Jesus came unto, Jesus Christ himself, was being mocked, laughed at. People did not believe in him. Many people did not believe in him. And if that is the stone that built the house of God, how can you and I as living stone not be treated the same exact way? Think about it. Many of us, when we come to church, when we go, we think, I just want a comfortable place. But yet that is not the life of Jesus. And if that's how to build like Jesus, how can we expect any different? I want to bring us back to, um, to the very beginning when Jesus' life was on earth. Shortly after he was baptized, he was brought, if you go to Luke chapter 4, I think I have it on the screen. Luke chapter 4, the three temptations by sin. If you go to that passage, we won't show the whole thing. But what you will see there is that the Spirit of God had led Jesus Christ to the desert. Why? To go camping? No. The Spirit of God led Jesus there to be tempted by saints. And I want to just kind of zero in three things that we see from three temptations there that kind of show us what Jesus is not about. Because my, my argument for you is this. If Jesus is not about these things, if we are believers of Jesus Christ, then our lives ought not to be about these things. Okay, so here's first temptation. The first thing that that uh, the, the, that Satan challenged Jesus was this in Luke chapter four. In verse three, it says this. Satan challenged him and says, "The de- uh, chapter four, four, verse three. The devil said to Jesus. By the way, Jesus had been fasting and not eating for a while, for forty days. And the devil said to him, "If you are the son of God, command these stones to become bread.'" And then Jesus answered him, it is written, man does not live on bread alone. And the devil took him up. Uh, uh, oh, stop right there. You see, it would be easy and comfortable for Jesus to have bread. He fasted for 40 days. When Satan comes by, he offered to give him bread. Those of you who did 30-hour famine, I know how famished you were afterwards and when we have that meal. We can, it doesn't matter how many trays of food we brought back. The comfortable thing is to devour the food. Yet that was not the life of Jesus. We know Jesus did not live a comfortable life. And Satan touched where it hurts and said, you didn't eat for 40 days. Guess what? I'm going to give you some food. And yet Jesus turned down that, play, that, that, that life of comfort. Not only that, he went on. Next temptation. He went on. He says this, that I will give you all this authority. He took him up to the mountain uh, to see the kingdom of the world. And he says, I will give you all this authority and glory. For it has been delivered to me, I give it to whomever I will, which is not true. If you, that, but only you need to do this, Jesus, if you then will worship me, 
it will be yours. And Jesus answered him, you shall fall, worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. You see, this is a, this is a life of convenience. Satan said, look at what you could have had. All you needed to do, the convenient thing is just bow your, bow your head to me and worship me. Then you get all these amazing things. But Jesus turned down a life of convenience. All he needed to do is, I'll worship you. You get the whole kingdom, all the kingdoms of the world. But Jesus turned down the life of convenience. And finally we see this. In the third temptation, Satan took Jesus up to Jerusalem, which is on a mountain and a hill, and he set him on the pinnacle, the top of the temple. And he said to Jesus, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he called in scripture, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest in fear of you strike your foot against a stone. You see what Satan is doing here? He's quoting scripture and saying, don't you remember Jesus? God promised these things. All you needed to do is just consume it, just take it. Right? The promise is already for you. It's God put all these promises for you, right, Jesus? Just consume it. Just take whatever you like. Take it however form you like to take it. And guess what? When you do it, you can you get to be safe. You get to be comfortable. I shared this song before. It's called False Teacher. My kids love that song. It's a rap song about all these false, false teachers in, uh, 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 in Christianity that is not preaching the gospel. And my kids actually asked me yesterday. We were listening to the song uh, on a car ride. And they said, so what, what's so false about these teachers? And I explained to them one of the biggest false, falsehoods that these teachers, these so-called pastors and teachers and teaching, is that very same thing. That if you come to Jesus... Just consume some goods. He will give you these things. He will give you money. He will give you wealth. He will give you health. He will give you happiness. All will be good. That's what they're promising. They said, don't you see? If you believe in Jesus, you have a convenient, good life. But yet we see in this temptation and in the whole life of Jesus, his life was never about consumption. It was never about consuming, consuming on, on, on any expense of others. So Jesus was tempted against comfort, convenience, consumerism. And my question for us is, is, are we tempted by these three C's as well? And as we look at 1 Peter chapter 2, we see that we are built upon the cornerstone of Jesus. And his, if his life was never about comfort, consumerism, and convenience, how can we as believers who are like him, the living stones, be about comfort, uh, consumerism, and, and uh, convenience. See, Jesus' life was never about that, and yet that is not what our lives become. And that's why, by the way, Peter, continue on in the passage, tell us three really important identities that we have. I preached this message, a different, uh, same passage, but a different message in another church. And I, I told them that the, in verse 9, we're going to see three pictures. The analogy I gave them is this. You can ever go online. You ever seen a link is blue, right? It's called hyperlink, right? You click on it, what happens? It brings you to a new, a new page, and it expands on what it's supposed to be. This, in verse 9, what we'll read is a hyperlink. 
See, when you and I read this, it will be just easy words to read through, titles that we read through, and, oh, sounds good, we heard this verse before. But for the, the audience of Peter at the time, this will bring back to mind of the Old Testament a very rich and deep identity of whom they were called to be. But the amazing thing is not just that these identities as Jews, but now those who are not Jewish because of Jesus also are part of this identity. What are those identities? Here's what it is. I want to read it for us in verse 9. It says this, but you're not about comfort, you're not about convenience, you're not about consumerism, but you have a new identity. What is that identity? But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. A people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So the first identity we see as a believer is not a comfort, but it is of chosenness. That you and I as believers are chosen. See, chosenness reign over convenient, uh, reign over convenience, should be convenience, uh, convenience. Our chosenness reign over convenience. And what I mean by that is this, when Paul said you are a chosen people, God did not choose you because it was convenient. Like for many of us, we kind of choose things, do things because it is the convenient, easy thing to do. Because when we read this passage in verse 10, it was not easy for God to chose us. Why? Because in verse 10 it tells us this. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you receive mercy. Meaning that once you and I were sinners, we were enemies of God. Like which one of you would want to choose an enemy to be friend? Unless you have really, really good reason for it. See, we were not even considered to be people of God. We were object of God's wrath it was not a convenient god did not choose you because it was convenient because you're lovable because i am so great god chose us the word there is mercy god chose us in spite of who you are it is almost like when my kids did something terrible and i chose not to punish them because i want to show mercy to them See, Jesus did not choose a life of convenience because God is not about a life of convenience. God did not choose us. And in fact, if you, when the people of God and the first Peter, when they read this letter, what they will immediately go is this. You go next one, please. In Deuteronomy chapter 7. Because God explained to the very chosen people why he chose them. Let's read that together. Ready? One, two, three. Or you are a people... The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasure possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Don't go to the next one yet. If you just read this, you're like, dude, we're good. Man, I'm treasured. I'm precious. Like, how many times have I heard parents telling me, you're so precious, when they did nothing? Like, we think, man, we got it made. We're treasure possession. God wants me. But here's what I want you to read in the next verse. Go ahead. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. 
God is saying to the, His chosen people, you are not these high and mighty great people. In fact, you are just that little tiny group of people that no one cares. You get crushed by the nations around you. So why did God choose us? Look at the next verse. But it is because the Lord loves you. If I have a little latitude here to inject a little explanation, it will be more like the Lord loves you in spite of you. Think of God's chosen people all throughout the Bible. Even the great Abraham, Moses, Isaac, every great person there have sins. The problem is not with someone we read them and say, oh, how great they are, their faith. The problem is not how great their faith is, it's how great God is in spite of their lack of faith. Every character in the Bible tells us that they might seem like great, but on the, on the, when we look at it honestly, they are not great. They all have sin, and as a result, that God still chose us. So God did not choose us because we're convenient to love, but God chose us because of his own love for us. Out of love, we were chosen. So we need to live out that chosenness, not because we're anything, but because God loves us. Here's the next one. Next, next, next picture we see not only chosen race, not because we're great at anything, but because of second one is a royal priesthood. The word royal there means that you are like kings and queens. But when we think of kings and queens, we think of people serving us. We think of people coming under us. But what I want us to notice is not that we're just royal, but here's a term attached to that, which was also said in earlier verses, that we are holy priesthood in in verse 5, and here it says we're royal priesthood. If you remember anything in the Old Testament, you will remember that priests own no land. They have no jobs that they can work at. They live at the mercy or the overflow of generosity of the people around them. A priest literally is a person who stands between man and God. They do whatever it takes to serve the people, bring their sacrifice to God. They are the gap, standing in the gap for people and God. That's what a priest does. The priests have no life of themselves. But they serve people on behalf, uh, they serve God on behalf of people. When the people of God read this passage in the Old Testament, what they will remember is that they are a royal priest and not only just the tribe of Levi, but God called all the chosen people to be the priesthood of God. Look at the next verse. In Joshua chapter 4, here's what it says. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you pass over. And as the Lord your God did to the rest sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over. They're crossing the Jordan River here. Here's the reason why God did all of those things. So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. So we don't choose a life of comfort. We don't settle for a life of convenience. Because our discomfort, our, our inconvenience becomes a, a, a place for God to write his story. See, when we're discomfort, when we're in need of God, when God shows up, so that people will know that the, Lord, the hand of the Lord is mighty. See, when we have everything, how else do we have space for God to write on, a, on, a, on his canvas? See, when we don't have a life of comfort, when we don't have a life of convenience, when we're not consuming things for ourselves, 
God also have room to write in your life so that when people look at your life and say, how on earth can you do what you did? And I hope that the only explanation for that is a three-letter word named G-O-D, God. But for many of us, we're trying to dish discomfort. For many, we're trying to dish all the inconvenience. We're trying to consume everything, make my life so perfect that there's no space for people to ask the question, how can your life be that way? Because our only answer to that is, I did it all. My parents did it for me. My family did it for me. I can create this life. If your life can be created by you, then my, my answer, my question for you is, where is God going to play a role in your life? God chose us to be a royal priest, to serve, to be a display for the people who don't know God, so that they can see us and say, wow, there is no way that you could live the life that you live. And then you say, you're right, I cannot live the life I live, because I needed Jesus. I needed God to be in my life. To live the life I live. Not only are we chosen, we're royal, we serve people that were chosen in spite of us. Here's the last one. We are a holy nation. We are a holy nation. That our character over our convenience. That it is our character is over our convenience. When we talk about holiness, I think a lot of times it's hard work, isn't it? Like if I have my choice, I don't want to be holy. You don't need to convince me to be lazy. It just comes natural. If laziness is a class, I think we'll all get A+. Right? But why did God call us to be holy? Is it because he just wants hard work for us, like make our life miserable? I think the reason why God calls us to be holy, part of it, we talked about it already in 1 Peter 1, is because God himself is holy. Right? But beyond that, God wants to show what kind of holy God he is. Go to the next passage, please. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, here God speaking to his people, it says, for what he's speaking on to the people, asking them, do you know how good you have it that you have commands and laws that will help you to be holy? Here's what he said. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? This is why God wants laws and commands upon us. Because his righteousness is the way, it's the way that we all want. You're like, how do you know that? I don't want righteousness sometimes. I know it's true because every time you get wrong, you want exact revenge. Because every time someone cut me off on the freeway, my immediate thing is I want justice. I want righteousness. I may express it in an unrighteous way, but we all want righteousness because we're made for righteousness. And God said that's why he wanted you to be holy. So that you can live righteously is for your good. And when people see that your holiness actually benefits your life, people are going to say, man, I want to live that way. And you're going to say, how can I live that way? I can't live that way myself. I need Jesus to help me live that way. That's why God creates to be royal priesthood, holy nation, a chosen race. But here's the last part I really want us to do, focus on. Because there's a reason for that. And I alluded to that already. Is this key word, the next one, next verse. Go back to First Peter. Is this word that? Anytime we see the word that or so that, it, it generally means purpose. 
Why did God make us royal priesthood? Why did God make us chosen people, a holy nation? Why? This is for this purpose. Let's read that together. One, two, three. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous life. Why did God call you to be royal treasure and, and all these great things? Is so that you can tell people about him. So you can proclaim about him. Proclaim not just the so-so thing, the average, the mediocre, the excellent thing about God. You see, if we settle for a life of comfort, convenience, and consumerism, if we just come to take, 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 and want the easy way out in life, and what we'll do is that we have no opportunity to tell people about the power of God, about the love of God, about the forgiveness of God. Think about it every time we shield ourselves from relationship, and which we know relationship is messy. We can get hurt. But yet if we don't allow ourselves in that place to be hurt, how can we ever show the world that forgiveness is real? How can we say that the cross is real when we've been forgiven and we can't forgive other people? You see, you and I are made to proclaim not just by words we will look at in 1 Peter chapter 3. 15 to 16, but not only by proclaiming, for next few weeks we'll see that we're proclaiming by our works as well. How we treat people in authority, how we live as husband and wives, children and parents, how we suffer is a way to proclaim the excellencies of him who calls out of darkness into marvelous light. This is why we cannot and cannot and cannot keep choosing the life of comfort, the life of convenience, the life of consumerism. We cannot keep sticking our hands and say, what can people do for me when the life of Christ is about what he could do for others? Some of you guys have been to my house. Many of you have been to my house. I want to end in this little uh, imagery for you. Um, some of you might have it in your own house. We have a uh, shelf for our kids for their trophies. Right? Trophies are meant to do what? To display. And so we kind of joke with our kids. If you get a participant trophy that goes to the bottom so no one can see. But you get first place, you can put it up top so everyone can see. Right? We all like trophies. Right? Trophies are put up there. But my, my challenge for you is this. Do you see your life as a trophy for God? Or do you see your life as a trumpet for God? I think about a trumpet. We're called to do what? Proclaim. We're trying to make noise. We're trying to make music. You know what a trophy does? A trophy just gets stand there and put there and collect dust. And it requires people to go inside of your house to walk up to that shelf to look at that trophy. Because you know what? The trophy itself does not make any noise, does not call for any attention. And I'm afraid that for many of us as believers, that's what we are. We just stand there. I'm a trophy for Jesus. Come look at me. But you can only look at me if you come to here, this place, and look at me. And I'll put on the best version of who a Christian should be, that you can see what I look, what I, when I look good. That's what a trophy does. But you know what a trumpet does? A trumpet makes loud sound. 
A trumpet can be heard even when the doors are closed. A trumpet can be heard miles away when you blow it. It makes music. You draw people. A trumpet can be taken out somewhere. It can also be played here. It can be played at home. It can be played in the band and orchestra. My question again for you is, this, are you a trophy for Jesus? Or are you going to be a trumpet for Jesus? Because as far as I know, when I read this word, it does not say we'll just stand there and be looked at. It says the reason why you are made royal priesthood, chosen, chosen people, holy nation, is so that you can trumpet the good news of Jesus to where you live, play, work, and, and study. That is why we need to pray for our one. This is what you are called to do. And that trumpeting sometimes would involve rejection. Sometimes would involve you being bit by the wolf. Sometimes you may allow you to bring the wolf in. But is it too risky for us to do that? Is it going to hurt too much? Is it going to be kind of disrupting my discomfort a little bit when I have a wolf in here? And I hope that when you look at the life of Christ, Jesus literally died to be fleeced by the wolf so that he can proclaim the excellencies of God so that you and I get to sit here and worship God to bring us from enemies to friends to from enemies to chosen people from enemies to royal priests uh, unholy people to holy people and verse 10 says from people who are not a people to the people of God people who have no mercy but now people of mercy of God so here's my question for you again. Are you going to be a trumpet for Jesus? Are you going to be a, a trophy for Jesus that sit and just look the best version that you can make up? Or are you going to be a trumpet for Christ wherever you go? And I hope the answer is the trumpet because there are way too many people in this world that have yet to hear to know Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior. And if that is not what your life is about, then I want to encourage you. Reflect on the gospel of Jesus, the gospel that saved you. Once a month, we take communion together for that very same purpose. For the purpose of remembering, for the purpose of celebrating what Christ has done for us. I want to read as, as, as I invite um, the worship band up here again. I want to read the verse for you again in verse 9. Of who you are as believers. That says, but you are a chosen race. A royal priesthood. A holy nation of people for his own possession. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That did not happen out of convenience. That did not happen out of comfort. That did not happen out of, out, out of consumerism. It caused Jesus' his own death on the cross. Not a pretend death. Can you close, turn the light off, please? The bread represents the, the body of Christ, and the Jews represent the blood of Christ. The scripture tells us that there is no forgiveness of sin without shedding of blood. Now, I want you to imagine, like back in those days in the old temple worship, uh, worship in temple, 
the temple would not be a, a place that smells real good. Because every time someone goes in there, they will require a sacrifice of an animal. Sacrifice of an animal is supposed to pay for the sin of your life and my life. I want us to bow our head and close our eyes as we take a moment to prepare ourselves to receive communion. Those of you who have been baptized, in a minute I want to invite you to come on up to get a piece of a cracker and, and a cup and return to your seat. Paul reminds us that we should not take communion carelessly. Because this is supposed to remind us the great love that God has for us. And as we really take in the verse that we just read, we were not a people. We are people who deserve a punishment, yet we become somebody today. And that ought to be. That's what should cause and stir affection toward God and worship toward God. So as the worship team played a cornerstone, I hope that it will help you to reflect on what God has done in your life. I want to invite those of you who have been baptized coming up and take a piece of the crackers. And then return to your seat until everyone has received one and then we'll partake it together. So come on up.